This is a Thinkers 50 podcast, brought to you in partnership with the Brightline Initiative, bridging the gap between strategy design and delivery. Hello, I'm Stuart Craner, and this is a Thinkers 50 podcast. Today, I'm talking with Carolyn Frankenberger of the University of St. Gallen in Switzerland and co-author of the Business Model Navigator. Carolyn, welcome. Thank you. Your research, among other things, looks at digital transformation, which is a, a phrase you often hear these days. What, what does it actually mean from your perspective? So first of all, it is important to understand what digital transformation is not. So digital transformation is not about the digitalization of single products or processes. Also, it's not necessarily about the implementation of cutting edge technologies, but it is about much more. And many companies do not understand that. And that's why they often take the wrong approach to digital transformation and then wonder why they don't succeed. So that's why it is so important to really understand what digital transformation is. It's about holistic transformation of our business. It's about significantly change value creation processes and significantly change value appropriation mechanisms. So digital transformation is really changing the entire business model of an organization and even more of an industry and of our entire business world. But, but not, not many companies get it right. It's one of those things that's talked about a lot, uh, but often companies fail to do it for a variety of reasons. So what, what, are, the, what are the pitfalls? What, mis- what mistakes do companies commonly make? Now, honestly, there are a lot of pitfalls. So, but for me, the most fundamental challenge is to successfully build up and run the new digital business. I often call this the second S-curve in parallel to the core business, so the first S-curve. And there are obviously there are tensions between these two areas and the challenge is to manage this tension and to consider it even as something natural. So the first S-curve obviously generates the majority of the groups or the company's turnover and it has to pay the investments needed for building up and running the second S-curve, the new business. But the break-even of the second S-curve um, is usually delayed and this kind of creates this tension and even more as the second S-curve is often considered as the cool and the fancy stuff, and the first S-curve as the old element. And therefore, it's clear that these two worlds are kind of isolated from each other, and um, it's difficult to manage that. And for me, mastering this skillfully is essential for the success of digital transformation. To ask a lot of organizations, because they've got to maintain their, their core, but whilst also changing. Mm-hmm. The, uh, and and what, what, which companies do you think have done this well? Well, there are a lot of companies that there are role models. So still a lot of companies also struggle in doing that. But I know impressive examples um, of the successful digital transformations, for example, in Indonesia, in the Netherlands, in Austria, Switzerland, US, etc., UK. But what, what all of these companies have in common, I think, is a proactive results-oriented approach to the issue an absolute focus on customer needs, as well a rigid test and learn approach, a culture in which mistakes are accepted, and a management team that is not only committed to the topic, but also knows how to motivate and empower its employees and to lead by example. So these are really the key issues that you need to consider when you, when you want to be successful with digital transformation. The, what, what about the focus on customer needs? Because often the customers don't necessarily know what they want, I would have thought, in, in this particular area. That's true. Therefore, it's important not to only ask your current customers, but also ask potential customers. 
and customers that are today your, not your customers, but that might be your customers in the future. So it's important to be broad there and to, to include different stakeholders. It's important to think it from the customer, to think about customer journeys and stuff like that. And I think in the old world, we were always very, especially in Europe, we were very technology savvy and, and like focused on developing something great. And then we were dumping it on the market, kind of this happy engineering, how we call it here in Switzerland. But it's important that you, that you now think about it from the other side, coming from the customer. So what does the customer really need? What does the customer really want? And not necessarily what we as a company can produce. And then bring those things together. New technology, obviously, it's still important, but then also bring it together with the customer needs. And this makes the successful companies successful. Are there different approaches to digital transformation across uh, cultures? I mean, is there a European approach, an American approach, an Asian approach? Or is it, or, yeah, or is I think it, there are differences for sure. So the Americans are more open. They are more used to that. They have more the startup DNA in their in their companies already. So I think it's more difficult for European companies that are more that have been strong in like focusing on technology. So for them, it's more a shift in thinking and a shift in the mindset. But I think also for incumbent um, U.S. companies, it's difficult, and also for Asia. I know a lot of companies in Japan, for example. They, struggle, they have the same difficulties and they struggle with this transformation as well. Actually, always when you have a successful legacy business, it's so difficult to think about and come up with a radically new business that even cannibalizes your current business. And that's the key challenge, to, let, to accept this cannibalization and to accept this dilemma and to live with this dilemma. And some cultures deal more readily with dilemmas rather than clear-cut solutions than, than others. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. The, the um, but it's it's a hard uh, trade-off, isn't it? If you to, to accept it is for sure, and and not not a lot of companies are able to do that. And I think it's also ultimately it comes back to the leadership style of the CEO or of the top management team. If they are able to 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 have this balance and to lift this balance and to accept this this trade-off kind of, um, then it's easier to or then then they are the likelihood that they are successful is, is higher. And what so you call that? This, ambidexterity kind of that you manage both worlds and but it's easy to explain that but it's very very hard to do that and it gets even more harder when it kind of um kind of um not ruins but if if your core business kind of is, is under pressure and if the new business cannibalizes really the core business and then having the courage as a leadership team to say okay we accept that we have like a dip in the profit in our core business because we know that it's important that we're going to invest in both for the new business only very, very few top managers are able to do that. Okay, so what, what are the skills of the, the CEO? What kind of CEOs thrive uh, when it comes to digital transformation? So they need to be courageous. What are, what are the other characteristics they need? They need to be courageous. They need to role model the change by themselves. So they need to, to, um, to lift that. If, if they talk about it, they also need to walk the talk, kind of. Um, they need to be open-minded, they need to have a strong vision, and they need to lift this vision. Um, they also need to be open to partner up with other organizations, like even with competitors. As you see, for example, now in the German automotive sector, like BMW and Daimler, they start cooperating, and this wasn't, nobody could even think of that, that this, something like that happens five years ago. But, but these are the traits that you need and the characteristics that you need as a top manager. Um, you have to be. You, you need to inspire your team. You need to be open to test early to go to the market with a product that is not ready yet, but still kind of open it up and get feedback from the customers. And you need to allow mistakes, and you need to be able to celebrate successes. And 
I, I'm always interested in the, the the willingness of CEOs to allow for mistakes and encourage failure. Do, do, you, do you think our attitudes to failure are, are changing, especially in Europe, when we've, we've tended to be uh, fairly negative about uh, failure? Yeah, there are changes, and I can see changes in organization. But it's also important that, that not, not always we, we should say, okay, failures are welcome. So we really need to think about that there's a, that there's a difference if we manage and lead on the first S-curve, like with the core business, or on this second S-curve, where we think about a new and creative solution. Because if you produce an airbag, for example, it's not the best thing to say, okay, yeah, sure, failures are welcome. It's not an issue if, if the airbags have some, yep. um, some mistakes in it, and then you bring it to the market, and then you have like this big um, scandal out there. So you need to know as a CEO when it's good to have failures and that to allow your team to do that, and when it's just not possible that failures are welcome. And it's not always, we, we shouldn't do all the startup um, at culture in all areas, but we really need to think about where do we want to have this culture and where do we need another culture and how can we manage this, again, this dilemma of both cultures and organizations. The, um, you've used the word dilemma a couple of times, and it, it seems to me that uh, in, in terms of leadership and organizations, we're moving into a world where there are more gray areas. We're talking about dilemmas much, much more than we used to in the past, where it was more black and white. Do you, you think that's a, a fair reflection? Yeah, that's true. So it's not that black and white anymore. It's more, it's more messy. It's more ambiguous, and, and managers and top managers have to deal with that. It's true. And you've also written about them in your book, the the business model navigator. Uh, you've got a, a new edition of that's coming out uh, next year, and uh, the first edition is is really kind of a standard reference book in business model in innovation literature. Uh, what does successful business model innovations have in common? Um, successful business model innovations um, have actually one thing in common. So the companies realize at the right moment that a radical reorientation is required and implemented promptly and rigorously. So then there are a lot of other myths about other success factors that are not really necessary for successful business model innovation. So for example, it's always said you need to, to, to invent a new technology and only then you can be successful with business model innovation. That's not true. You can use the technology that is there in the market, but you don't necessarily have to invent it. So for example, what we, find, what we found out in our study, and that really surprised us as innovation, innovation researchers, that over 90% of all those successful business model innovations that are out there, like, and that we always admire, like the Ubers and the Airbnbs, they are not really new. In fact, ni over 90% um, are really based on recombinations of existing business models. And those business models have been there in other industries, for example, and then the companies just used those business models and and um, copied it kind of and, and applied it to their industry. And by applying it to the industry where it hasn't been applied in the, in, in the past, then you can really revolutionize your industry. But the business models are not necessarily new to the world, but new to the industry or to the broader industry context. So orig originality is overrated. Yeah, exactly. The, uh, so what, what strategies are there to redesign your business model? If you <laughs> Well, actually, we, we developed a four-step approach, and successful companies really stick to that. So at the beginning, you need to analyze your current business model. So I'm often asked by like top management teams, oh, can we work on a new business model? And then I say, okay, yes, but to do that, we need to start with defining our current business model. And then they typically say, oh, we can skip that. We all know what our business model is. And then if I ask 20 top managers, okay, what is your business model? 
then um, I get 20 different answers because it's not really clear what our business model is. Everybody thinks, I know that, but it's so complex, it's so fuzzy that you really need to invest time to define your business model and to, to really laser focus what is it and what it is about. And then, so this is the first step and then you need to understand what are the influencing factors? And this is coming back to what we discussed at the beginning. So what are the customer needs? What are the unmet customer needs? What are the potential customer needs in the future? And how does that influence my business model? And also what about new technologies, about new trends, like sustainability is a big topic nowadays in, in Europe. So how does it influence my business model? And then if you have done that, then you can go into the next step, into the ideation phase. And there what we um, suggest top managers and what works really well that they look at those successful business models from other industries and actually we've developed a set of 55 basic business model patterns and then kind of apply those business model patterns to your own industry and then think about okay what does that mean to my organization so for example we would say okay if if you would apply the Skype business model pattern to your automotive industry what would that mean so giving the cars for free and then only after they they used it for more than to, to drive more than 100 kilometers then you would charge them for something like that and this brings them to really truly innovative ideas that are far away from their current thinking and helps them to break the dominant logic and that's really important to get out of your dominant thinking and to break this dominant logic and to come up with radically new ideas and then after you have done that you need to bring it together and think about uh, the new business model so based on all those radical disruptions ideas what does it mean for my business model how can my business model look like in the future and then also getting back to my core competencies so what are my core competencies in the organization and how can I leverage the core competencies because maybe that's also important often I get asked okay um, why does it make sense that corporates or incumbent companies think about innovating their business model isn't it much easier to just buy a startup and acquire a startup that has a cool business model and then integrate it into the organization but that's not true, so you, you should also do that, but I think it's important that companies really think about innovating their business model as well, because the big difference and the big advantage that organizations who have is that they have a core business and that they have capabilities in the organization, like capabilities about technologies and stuff like that, capabilities about how to manage an organization. And if you can combine the core competencies with like, the, the new with new elements and the needs in the market and you're really better off than startups because this is what startups do not have and then if you have that then ultimately it's about implementing it about testing the business model prototyping it getting feedback from the market and and running kind of this lean startup methodology that we all know well so it's pretty amazing that people in organizations don't actually know what their business model is yeah it's interesting yeah and i, I had this experience like tons of times they always said okay we know it but then if you ask them they don't really know it because they never think about it and they never take the time to think about what really is our business model what is our value proposition and, and really in one sentence nail it down in one sentence what is the key value proposition that we offer what are our key customers what are our processes and what is our revenue mechanism and it's not so easy it sounds simple but it's difficult to do that yeah yeah and and so your research has narrowed down 55 business model patterns Yes, we call it patterns because it's kind of basic business models, basic business model patterns that can be used by any organization. So that you can just use those patterns, look at them, like for example, performance-based contracting. And then you can see, okay, which organizations use this pattern and this business model and how would this business model influence my business model if I would apply this business model. 
for example, a couple of weeks ago, I talked to the um, one of the top management team members of um, Michelin, and I figured out that, and I didn't know that even that they sell the airplane, airplane airline um, wheels. They don't sell them, but they charge them per landing. So the airlines have to have to pay per landing of an airplane. They pay a price to Michelin. So this would be a performance-based contracting. And how could you apply that to other industries? For the automotive industry, you don't buy a car, but you pay per kilometer that kilometer or mile that you use it. Were you surprised that there was so many or so few business model patents? Actually, now I think 55 is a decent amount. Uh, and, and it's also kind of, um, it, it changes a bit. So some are not used anymore and then new business models um, come up and are developed and then we add them to the set. So by now it's not 55 anymore. We have kind of 60 or 61 business model patents. That's a bit flexible. Yeah, so the, num the numbers are changing all the time. So as new yes. business models d develop. I mean, there's, there's a cliche in business that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Where, where do we stand on that now? This is a very important statement. So I think every digital transformation is also a cultural transformation. And I think it's really important that top managers do understand that. And this has changed as well. So in the past, when I look back 10 years ago, culture was kind of the side thing. Nobody really um, paid attention to. But nowadays, top managers... Most top managers get it and they do understand that cultural transformation is really key. So I think what is important that, um, first of all, top managers role model the, the transformation, that they know that they are the ones that need to drive it and need to go ahead. So the leaders must credibly re um, represent the, the values that they preach and the principles themselves. So they cannot expect their team to, to live according to the values if they don't. So that's really important. So even when things are getting difficult, then as we already mentioned, failure culture is extremely important. Um, employees need to know that if they fail, this does not have negative consequences for their careers. And I know a lot of examples where the, where the top management team says, oh yes, we want digital transformation. Yes, we want to have a failure culture. But then if I talk to the middle managers, they tell me, you know what, um, Carolyn, if I do that, and if I fail, I can forget about my career in this organization. So the safer bet is to stay in the core business, to stay on the first S-curve and just do whatever they expect from me because then for sure I can make my career. So why should I go and go doing this risky thing and knowing that ultimately this doesn't really boost my career? So talking about it and really living it are two different um, stories and top managers can really improve here. And another factor I think is consistency, especially when it comes to communication. So the same values and principles always um, need to be applied and these need, they need to be consistently passed on to the employees. And finally, also structure is important. So I think structure kind of helps to anchor the culture. So there can be processes can be created in order to ensure the important exchange between the first and the second escrow. Yeah, in interesting. Uh, so Carolyn uh, Frankenberger from the University of St. Gallen and co-author of the Business Model Navigator, thank you very much. Thank you. This is a Thinkers 50 podcast, brought to you in partnership with the Brightline Initiative, bridging the gap between strategy design and delivery.